This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Network Ireland Rap Chat Podcast. Uh, my name is Luke Brabazon and today we will be chatting with Natasha Paulberg. I'm delighted to have her into the studio today. Natasha is an award-winning Australian-Irish uh, composer who has worked on a lot of the projects that we might have seen on TV over the last couple of years. So some of the documentary series that she's worked on recently were The, the Hunger, which was the documentary about the Irish famine narrated by Liam Neeson. And then also more recently, she uh, composed the music for the Irish Civil War, which was narrated by Brendan Gleeson. Um, so this is a really fascinating conversation. We cover a lot of topics. We talk about the way her career has progressed to um, where it is now, and a lot about what the process is for composers in the modern world now with technology and stuff. Things have changed a lot. And we also talk a lot about the different bits of advice that Natasha might have for younger composers and directors working with composers um, and how these different things can be done to lead to the best projects possible. So it's a really, really dense, really fascinating conversation. So highly, yeah, it, it's great. So with no more further ado, um, we'll go on to the conversation with Natasha Paulberg. Welcome, Natasha, to the show. Um, so I think we'll start the conversation basically with where you began yourself as a composer. What sort of got you interested in this? Um, well, I come back, I come from a concert music background. So, I mean, I was always in, into music and uh, writing my own music and um, performing as well. I actually was a piano bar player. <laughs> That's how I sort of started way back. Um, and then I had a friend who um, had a wedding and he's like, can you play at the wedding? And I played at the wedding and later on he actually became a director. And he said to me, hey, you know, you, you write music, don't you? And I was like, yeah. And he said, come in and actually do one of my short films. So that was my first uh, experience of writing for a short film and I just loved it. And then I went off and I did um, a master's in the, the music and media technologies MMT in Trinity. So it kind of, it happened very organically. I've always loved film music, even as a kid. Um, but it's one of those things I sort of fell into. I didn't know that I wanted to do that from the very beginning. So really it was a process of meeting people, um, doing gigs, helping friends out with short films, and then it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it can work like that a lot in this industry. I know for myself it was similar at a certain point then, like okay well this can be made the full-time thing mm. then how how do you manage that kind of transition I guess from when the point that you go from from where maybe you're 
doing a certain amount of projects outside of your normal work and normal life mm. but then at a certain point you make the jump of going full-time I feel like that's got to be a difficult thing to navigate for quite a few years oh definitely and I think you know I think I was just lucky I mean I mean I probably should backtrack but I did you know obviously from Australia I'm from Australia and for my equivalent like leaving cert in in Melbourne um there was that choice of I was doing music and but I was also doing a lot of sciences and I had, had to kind of choose you know do I do music as um an undergraduate degree or do I do sciences and my family were pretty much like <laughs> get a real job first <laughs> so and that's when it, you know I lecture and I have taught students in the past and this is what I could sort of say as well I mean it, it depends but I think um for me it worked out having a job I became an osteopath um and that enabled me to work my own hours and do music on the side. So I think that was, I was lucky and it paid well when I was at work as well. So, and I do say to people like there's no shame or, you know, you know, it's not a bad thing to have, you know, a backup plan and to have something financially support you while you, you're chasing your dreams in whatever that might be. So for me, that's what, that's how it happened. So I was working as an osteopath. But um, obviously then came to Ireland and started to get more into the music. And as the music took over, I worked less and less as an osteopath to a point that I actually couldn't work anymore as an osteopath, even though I quite liked it. Being with people was great fun because um, composing is a very solitary, can be very solitary. So it was nice to get out of the studio and, and see patients as an osteopath. Um, but it get to a point that, yeah, I had to just, the music took over. But it took a while. It did take a while. I mean... I only stopped doing full, uh, well, you know, I kind of started that I do maybe 20 hours a week and then it went down to 10 hours a week being an osteopath and went lower and lower and lower. And I, and I still do, I don't really lecture as much anymore. That's another thing I was starting to do. I do more master classes, um, which is more kind of giving back actually, because it's still, at least, and it's still all still in music. You know, my lecturing and master classes are all to do with music. So it keeps me in the same world. Whereas being an osteopath was like wearing two hats. You know, one minute I'm writing, next minute I'm talking about someone's back pain. <laughs> so that was really funny. But it does, it takes time and a lot of composers do teach on the side, even the ones in LA. They do, um, you know, I definitely know some big composers who do some teaching, sometimes because of the healthcare, because when you teach in, in the States, the university gives you really good healthcare and you know how expensive it is over there. And it gives you a bit of, I mean, with being not, um, being a composer or you know, I'm sure a writer or director, as we all know, work is not continuous. You have down times, sometimes you're crazy busy and other times you have nothing. Um, and so it is sometimes nice to have just something a little bit every week that you know you can rely on. So I think composers still do a lot of that, teaching instru instrumental music, um, playing, performing, uh, so that's what I would say. It takes a long time and sometimes you still do a little bit on the side. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm. And I think that is a big thing with our industry, how, mm. how you can, the whole feast or famine kind of situation, totally. like we know around winter can often be a quieter time, but then mm. as we get into summer, things can get a lot busier and that's always a tough thing to, to navigate, I guess. Mm. So the idea of being, having a diverse range of, areas you're working in it seems like a very important one I think so and it keeps you really um interesting and you meet I mean I I do find I think being involved in different networks as well um of different areas you meet people and you never know where your next job could come from I mean that first thing was from a wedding doing 
being a piano bar singer and doing weddings. <laughs> I mean, you never think of that. So I always say, you know, um, to be involved in lots of different things socially as well because you never know. It's fun. It's healthy. But it's also you don't know where your next job will come from. And especially in Ireland, you know, we're smaller. So the more people you meet, the more your name gets out there. And, oh, I know someone that I met at this party or this event or whatever that, that's a composer. So it can work that way as well, I think. Yeah, I do think that's a a major part of it. It kind mm. of ends up being integrated into your life beyond how people might consider a, a regular job, let's say, mm. because mm. the networking and the connections and the just being around and being a face that people recognize uh, it is kind of a big, big part of it. It's a big um, part of it. And, you know, in our industry, it's like we're, we're so collaborative um, in film. And, and I think that's really an important thing to realize that we are, even though a lot of us are introverted, we do work with other people and to not lose that, you know, to be with people and especially now with COVID and everything, I think it was very hard because we we're all so isolated. So it's, I think now coming back, it's taking a bit of effort to get back into socializing, I think. And I've totally felt it as well. I got so used to being in my room <laughs> working away which is not not always healthy to do all the time so I think um getting back out now is a good thing for everyone I think mm -hmm. so too and yeah speaking of the COVID times I know you got very busy with a lot of interesting work um would you be able to tell me a bit about what you were working on over the last couple of years yeah it's one I was one of those people that I mean COVID was a funny time because I was the busiest <laughs> I've ever been which I never thought would happen. Um, so right at the beginning of COVID, actually, I started off with uh, The Hunger, um, which was on RTE about the Irish famine, narrated by Lee Meeson. So that's when I got that job. I think it was like March or April of 2020. So that was a lot of that year. So, and then I've worked, I've worked with uh, the director, Rowan McGann, two more times since then so we did 100 years of Ulysses and we just finished and it was just broadcast um the Irish Civil War with narrated by Brendan Gleeson which was a big big project that was really big and there was also a concert of the music at the Cork Opera House for the second episode they did a live orchestral to screen um screening pre-screening I think they call it uh concert so it's been really busy and I think for, well, so what I noticed with COVID I think what happened is obviously you know um it really affected the film industry but it seems that documentaries really took over because it's archival material there's a lot smaller crew that you need so I ended up doing a lot of documentaries another one I I did was Atomic Hope with director Frankie Fenton that's actually coming out in cinemas next month in February in Ireland so um I highly recommend to see that very interesting documentary about um pro-nuclear environmentalists around the world so yeah, for me, it worked. COVID really worked and I had a lot of work, um, but also too, I was able to, because especially the two with the famine, uh, the hunger and the Irish civil war, quite heavy, emotionally, you know, um, moving heavy things to score. So I kind of liked staying home in my room <laughs> and just focusing on that. I didn't have the pressure to socialize. So strangely enough, COVID worked for me that way um so yeah I know it was tough for a lot of people but um COVID actually worked out for the documentary so it'd be interesting to see now that we're out of um 
uh, well, not not completely out of COVID, but things are moving along that what I'll be doing next, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting the, the way the documentary sort of did kind of take over a bit. And then also I know a lot of long form things on Netflix and stuff. People got really into that kind of thing. Um, I'd be interested to talk a bit about what the actual nuts and bolts of the process of mm-hmm. composing is, because it is an area at least I'm not particularly familiar with in terms of what actually goes into it. So when, how does the collaboration with the director work? Or how do you like to collaborate with um, directors? It probably varies. Like it varies on what type of project it is. Like documentaries would be different to say a drama or, um, or anything else. Uh, so with um, the documentaries, um, with Rowan McGann, so what we did is it, he likes to work with music that you have already, uh, not like temp music. So they like to cut the music. So I actually um, would give them a playlist of some of my music from past projects or anything like that, and they would put some of that music as their editing uh, but first, I should backtrack, actually. So, no, I like for both of those, I did get um, the script, the the narration. So I had an idea of what it was looking like. Um, and also I had an idea of the emotional arcs because, I, you know, it's very hard with documentary. I'm, I would say, like, where do you think the music starts? What's the emotional arc? Where are the scenes in, in, the, do- in the documentary? And with those two, it was pretty much wall-to-wall music. Um, so I just had to have an idea of what do you want to say in each sort of scene. Um, so I'd get the script from Ruam and then within the script, he actually would write, you know, here, the, this new scene starts, this is the kind of music, <clears throat> um, that we're looking for. So I would actually start writing just cues without even seeing any of the music, sorry, any of the, the film. So I just started to write music. Um, and then when it came time to editing, I would send that music as well as other tracks that I have. I'd be like, you know, this might, you know, just to help them editing. So as they're editing, they would put the music in and sometimes they use my tracks that I had. And other times they would add other temp music from other, obviously other, uh, libraries or other composers. So, and that's how it would work. So then I would get it with the temp track with a almost locked picture, um, and then I would work through it. And because, you know, obviously when they do temp, they'll cut halfway through the song and, you know, so you would have to change that. And then they sometimes put temp tracks in that I would get the mood of what they're looking for. Sometimes there would be nothing there, it'd just be sound design. So then I have to figure out like, what are they looking for here and what do they want to hit or what should be hit in the narration. So that's different to, to drama because with documentaries, you don't have as many hit points as such. They call them hit points like hitting a scene cut or, you know, it's more of what they're talking about. So I always use an example in The Hunger. She's talking about, um, you know, the British Empire and, you know, how it's growing. And and so the music would be very sort of military, I would say kind of military empire, big sort of sound, orchestral. And then she starts to talk about um, poverty, the poverty in Ireland. And then I had to, as soon as she says poverty, I boom, change the music into something different. So that's how it would actually work in, for me in a documentary. I'm really listening to what they're saying. Um, and that's about it. So we'd, I'd, I'd do MIDI mock-up, meaning I use samples. So throughout the whole um, process of the editing, they give it to me. I write the music using MIDI samples. Uh, then I get the okay 
I would get the okay from the director or we'd get changes. Could you change that? Could we maybe shift this piece or this piece needs to be longer or shorter or have a different feel? Um, and then once I get the sign off on the MIDI, the, the mocked up version, then I would go off and create the actual scores for live players. And I work a lot with the RTE concert orchestra. So then we'd go to the orchestra, we'd record all the music and then mix all the music and replace the MIDI mock-ups with the live version. So it's, it's a pretty, when it's with orchestral music, it's a bit of a process, definitely. So that, that's, that's pretty much a documentary approach that I have had. <laughs> okay, so it, it's almost like you're, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for it, but it's sort of a patchwork of things you build, sort of temporary versions. You, yeah. It's, it's a big back and forth between all of the creatives involved in the project as it slowly takes its shape. And then yeah. as it goes on, you're able to make more, let's say, permanent or more um, bigger decisions or you're able to put more effort into each layer until finally when you get to the point of recording for the orchestra you're everyone's happy that this is how things are yes um exactly okay. and it's really important to and i always say to composers you do need good sample libraries even though it i mean sometimes the samples end up in the final mix because there's certain effects that i've used in the brass for example that you may not have the budget to have a whole brass section for an extra day in, in, with the orchestra or it's just quicker like for example Percussion. I'd say it. Percussion's actually really good sampled, so I don't usually record percussion unless it's some ethnic instrument or something particularly difficult that a sample doesn't have. <clears throat> so you end up sometimes a lot of actually no, a lot of the time is mixing the live with the samples. So I always say you've got to have good samples, regardless whether it gets used or not in the end. And also it's to try and make a as realistic realistic mock-up as possible for the director to hear because it's very hard for people who are not in music if you kind of give them a demo or a sketch it's hard for them to imagine what it's going to sound like and it might be off-putting and even though you can hear it and you go this is going to sound great they can't hear what you're going to hear what you're hearing in your head so if you can mock it up to be as closely to the original sound to give them a good idea that's going to be a benefit to you as a composer make life easier Okay, and would you be able to explain for um, like what a what exactly is a sample or a sample library? Mm. So I I understand the industry has or the way things are done for composers has changed a lot in the last couple of years. So maybe if you could elaborate yeah. a bit on what they are and how that fits into everything. Well, definitely technology is a big part of being a media composer for sure, um, and you have to be. You have to wear a lot of hats, so it's like a, a producer of your own music, a mixer of your own music, um, so it's a lot broader than it used to be. Um, so sample libraries are recorded samples of real instruments, so they go off and they record all the different, for example, let's say a string instrument, different articulations, pizzicato, spiccato, um, legato, all the different, uh, there's a whole bunch of them, flutando, um, they record instruments playing individual notes of those articulations and then it makes a big library of sound and then you put it into they put it into package it up so it's into a sampler and a very widely used sampler would be contact um, and that's a plug-in in logic so I have my orchestral template in logic and so it has a violin section and one of the tracks or many of the tracks would have a plug-in of contact and one track will be spiccato, one would be marcato, all the different. And that's how you uh, write the music. So it's quite, you need to kind of 
know what you're doing, but also too with the sample libraries, you have control of volume and modulation. There's all these controls to learn. And so as a media composer, that's something you just have to learn either through formal formal education or self-education um, or learning on the job. But it is an integral part of um, the industry. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it is fascinating to think that I imagine in the past, well, that that just is a whole avenue that wouldn't have been available to people. And no. Yeah, mm. that's a huge change. It's a huge change. And then you go back, you know, I love talking to um, the LA composers, older, you know, who around in the 80s. And wow, <laughs> so different. It was all like, you know, it was tape, splicing tape. Cha- I mean, it was just completely different, all pencil and you know, and I, the, I I really admire them how they used to fit. They used to have a thing called tempo books. I don't I don't even know how they work. So, figuring out what tempo is needed to hit certain spots in the time code, and it was a big book like a bible, of, and it would help you figure out what's the best tempo for the music. I mean, now you press a button in DP in Digital Performer, and you put your hit points. I want these hit points on the time code, and it actually works out a tempo for you. I mean, so we're lucky, but but sort of lucky. But then the other side of it is there's so many choices now, especially with electronic scores as well. We're inundated with so many uh, sonic choices, whereas I suppose, you know, back in the day in the 80s, it's like you had the instruments and that was it. So pros and cons, I think, definitely pros and cons. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's fascinating how, quickly a lot of our industries mm. and a lot of our works have changed same um, yeah same with you with the directors and editing you're yeah. editing to you know you can and that's that's another issue P- picture lock so picture lock used to be picture lock <laughs> that's it and you'd get the music as a composer and you're like this is not going to change now they're you know it's changing to the last minute even before broadcast you know um, which makes a composer's life a bit of a headache because if you add two seconds or five seconds that can throw out a whole piece of music, you know, and then you have to really restructure it, when, which takes time. So, yeah, it's it's great to be able to tweak and tweak and tweak, but it does make it hard to know I'm done. <laughs> it's done. Yeah, I can understand that because also I imagine the work of the composer is near the end of the line in terms of all the creatives involved in the mm. making of a film project the music is one of the last layers yeah. put on, but then if there is a set deadline for when things need to be done, your crunch, the, the time the gets crunch. cut down, cut down, <laughs> cut down, yeah. and then the composers are the ones to have to deal with having one night to yes. fix everything and send it. So, And that is a real problem, and especially as it gets more high, high profile and more pressurised. I mean, I know friends... A colleague of mine, we were in UCLA together, we did film scoring, and she was just saying how there was a film she was on and, you know, two weeks to write like something like 40 minutes of orchestral music. I mean, that's insane. And it just, and that's when you, unfortunately, you get a budget as a composer and that budget then gets dwindled away because you have to hire all these people to help you to do additional music, you know, and that's a problem too because then you lose out because you've only got two, two weeks. So... You know, I actually kind of, and she was basically saying to them, don't ever do that to me again. Because also too, you don't get the best out of a composer under that much amount of stress. Um, So I have a thing where I actually always ask for a little bit more time because I know 
they'll get half of that or less. So I always ask more than I need because I know it's going to be cut down, you know. And I do understand when someone says, you're going to get it middle of March. You're definitely going to get picture lock middle of March. And I'm like, nope, I know it's going to be April. <laughs> so you just learn to, but you just roll with it. I mean, there's not much, you can, everyone's under pressure. I mean, that's the thing. So I just think oh, you do the best you can. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> so that kind of covers how you would work with the, so you've said the the process when you're doing documentaries is the constant building in that mm. way. Would that be similar with the fiction project fiction. or do things change there? I know it's that different. a lot of, mm. with the documentary, so much of the creative work is really done in the edit and maybe mm. with the fiction film, things are done a bit ahead of time. Are you able to treat things differently there? Yeah, and it's... it. And actually, I'm thinking of Atomic Hope was a little bit different that way as well. I treated that a little bit more like um, I, a fiction or, or a drama or, you know, a feature film kind of thing. Um, that's when you sit with, well, the process is different. You know, sometimes I wouldn't really get the script for that, maybe, just to get, again, to get, I only use a script early stages to write ideas because you, you never know what you'll, what you're going to write exactly until you see the picture because you might have something in your mind and then you actually start to see the images and like oh actually that is not all going to work for that picture it's sounded too big and you know maybe the visuals are much more intimate than the way that's been filmed so um I usually kind of wait until I see something before writing it you know anything some I think we call it rushes or rough cuts or whatever um but when it's sort of close to picture lock for for that kind of thing I would usually get the director in and we go through the whole film together and we call we, they call it spotting sessions and this is where you really nut out together okay maybe music and you it's all time code so like a music comes in here what's the feeling what are they saying what's you know maybe we've got to come out of here because dialogue is really important and the music theme will come up so that's when it, you sketch out the whole thing yourself um, with the director and then I would go away and create themes, you know, ideas. So I did that for Atomic Hope as well. And, and a lot of the the, um, the fiction or, you know, dramas where it has a narrative. So theme for characters, theme for moods or places. And you sketch it out more in a linear fashion. So it's not just editing to a whole bunch of music here and there with the documentary with different uh, music for different moods. It's more of a thematic approach. Um, and there with that the music has more of a similar, I don't know, feel throughout the whole thing. It's more connected, I would say, whereas some of the um, documentaries, it's still like it's still the same music, but it's more contrasting. They want more contrasting tracks because, oh, now we're talking about this, but then we're talking about that. So you need to contrast the music to show the change in what we're talking about in the documentary, whereas the, the feature films, the dramas, it's not so much you're threading through the whole thing and keeping it connected okay that's mm. very interesting i think maybe with documentaries are they you're kind of trying to emphasize the rises and the falls possibly. exactly exactly mm. exactly it is it's kind of more because they call i know they saw you say a lot lots of talking heads <laughs> so you know if it can if and it's interesting you take away the music and it can be quite dry sometimes um without something emotionally in the background to tell you this is you know to keep you engaged so that's where the music probably has to be a little bit more I've noticed a little bit more forefront 
maybe depending on documentary, depending what it is, but I've noticed a bit more forefront, a bit more powerful, whereas with the drama I'd, I'd pull a lot more back because you've got the dialogue, the dramas on the screen happening with the, the actors. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's different. But then it's every director has a different approach that they like to have. Um, I know that, for example, like Hans Zimmer and now James Newton Howard, what they do is they write suites. So they write, um, so they, they might kind of, I don't, I think they see some of the film, but this is even before the film, they write maybe a 10 minute overture suite with all the different themes that they plan to have. It's like this big piece of music. And from that, they just cut it, cut it up and use those themes throughout the, um, the film. And it's, it's a kind of, I mean, apparently it's like a, a quicker way, I think, to work as well because you, you start off going, okay, I've got all my themes now. I've just got to put them in, vary them, change what they're doing, have different instrumentation. Okay. Mm. Interesting. There, there always seems to be so many different ways that yeah. a job can be approached and possibly building in some limitations also can be helpful for creativity and not getting yeah. too lost in things because as we were talking about the technology there, when everything is possible then that can sometimes be forever be very challenging (laughs) oh it's really I mean I always start off as well to and we you know work this out with the director I try and be like what's what's the sound palette what's the instrumentation I for me I feel it's kind of nice to stay within a certain sound palette throughout the film just to keep it connected you know I try and avoid to I don't like the idea or I don't know I don't want to say I don't like the idea but I don't think it works as well when you have oh here's a electronic cue here and then we have piano then we have you know orchestra and then it's a bit too for me disjointed I think you know if you have a palette and then use parts of the palette throughout so you might have piano and then you might have a bit of orchestra or if you do use electronic elements that they're more organic in their sounding synth sounds um, rather than say Aphex Twin I don't even know like that glitchy stuff so it's just trying to think what is the sound palette that we're going to have what's the What's the identity of this film? And I think that's a really interesting thing, having a sound identity of each project. You know, I think that gives a real uniqueness. So um, so it has the sound, has an identity that matches the film and it's unique to the film. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And I suppose also music is something that needs to complement and improve the project as a whole. It can't be, it can't, it can't try and sort of, take over in a way it needs mm. to be something that works to enhance the story while not distracting from it as well so you're kind of you're contributing to the overall picture instead of just making a standalone piece yourself I guess I exactly. suppose that's something that always needs to be considered oh exactly and I think that's a job well done when you know I actually don't mind when you have reviews of the film and or and they don't really mention the music. I'm like, that's okay. It's good. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't distract. It didn't. Or, um, yeah, because bad music. What do they say? Like, um, whatever film it is, good or bad. Like music can really change. It can make a a bad film good or a good film bad. <laughs> so you do. You have to be careful there. You don't want to distract the person. It has to be. I kind of sort of say it has to sit just underneath it. That's how I feel. It's, it's, it is underscoring. They call it underscoring. You know, you're scoring under what's happening and supporting what's happening. Um, so I think that is a compliment. People go, oh, I like the music, but didn't notice it too much. I'm like, great. 
<laughs> in especially in drama and narratives and but I mean it comes up when it has to obviously if you want this big emotional part and but it has to match what's happening on the on the screen but it's a tr it's a tricky little dance and it's not something that you can sometimes this is my th feeling anyway sometimes it's hard to learn how to do that it's I think it's very intuitive you know I feel it very intuit intuitively that's the word um of when there's too much or not enough music. So you use your head, but then you sit back and watch it and you just, with your feelings, go, oh, that just doesn't feel right. If it doesn't feel right, something's wrong, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So much of what we do, I think, yeah, some of it is, I guess I often think of the difference between something being an art and a craft. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes some things are more craft than art in some ways where you just... You've done the hours, you know what things feel right, you know when something isn't quite there and a lot of it is just from the experience and the hours mm. put in. Mm. Um, so to sort of change tack a small bit, um, the, you know, it's a very, I guess, well, yeah, the question I wanted to ask basically is, mm. is there any advice if you were to talk to yourself from 10, 15 years a mm -hmm. uh, back uh, is there any advice you wish you could have passed down to yourself or any advice you might have for younger composers that might be mm. looking to enter the industry gosh that's a good question because I kind of just followed my nose you know I <laughs> didn't have any plan whatsoever <clears throat> just kind of I think you know definitely putting the craft first you know you're an artist first and foremost I think that's a really important thing to remember you know not to be like every trying to be like everybody else. I think it's good at the beginning to emulate, learn different styles, emulate different kind of genres. It's just a good little thing to understand, um, and then bring your own uniqueness because uh, that's what people look for. Is they want you, you know. That's what I really noticed. You know, I would say that don't try and be somebody else, just be you. Um, because over time, what I noticed is they were coming. And made my life easier too because people were coming for my style. So the pressure wasn't on to be something else because that's a hard hard thing when someone comes in and say, hey, I really like this score by blah, blah, blah. Can you do something like that? And that's hard because you're not that person, you know. So I think definitely be you. Um, also, I would say to a point, but I, I, what I, I would say to say yes to pretty much everything. <laughs> especially at the beginning, because you just don't know where it's going to go. I did some crazy things, you know, a crazy score that I never would have, I probably wouldn't do today, because, but, but it, it, you know, I learned something. I learned about technology. I think I did like a 70s funk score <laughs> for a short film, which I'm like, this is not my style at all. But I learned, I was like, oh, that's really, I learned that bit of technology. I learned that sample library. I learned how to emulate that. Great. Probably won't use it again, but it's good to know. Um, so I would do everything. And also, too, I remember someone gave me great advice that I always stick with now. We do have this impost. I think we're all, you know, when you're artistic and we have, we're usually sensitive and not, not always, but introverted, um, you know, the whole thing of like, oh, I'm not good enough or I don't know how to do that. But I remember a composer saying to me, uh, just say yes and figure it out later. <laughs> and I think that's really good advice. And that most, compo most composers feel this way where we do have imposter syndrome. You know, even the the big Hollywood composers, you know, that I've met and talked to and they've done amazing things and they still have imposter syndrome. But I think there's a good thing to that because you're always striving to be better. Um, but just to kind of put that little negative 
person, I think um, Christopher Young used to tell, tell me this, he'd say, look, that little person on your shoulder that's telling you negative things, just every now and then just put them aside, put them just somewhere else and do your work and then they can come back later on your shoulder, you know, just to put them down and just do your best and not listening to all that, you know, the critical kind of side of you. Um, I would also too say to be bold and brave. Uh, I think I definitely at the beginning, you know, I'd be too tentative to do some crazy music ideas because, you know, you'd be scared to lose the job <laughs> or not get or not get the job. But I think now I'm like, you know, yeah, I should have just done that crazy stuff that was uniquely me that I liked. And if they didn't like it, that's fine. But, you know, they might have gone, yeah, you know, I like that because I have done more bolder stuff recently and I've realized that, yeah, it works. It's okay. You know, but it is, it's like you're wearing your heart on your sleeves an artist, aren't you? You're, you're like, oh, here I am, you know, and it's very exposing and it's very vulnerable, but not to be scared, to be okay, to be vulnerable as an artist. Um, so that's what I'd say to myself. Don't be scared, just go for it. <laughs> very good. I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a crash course. That's a, <laughs> that's a lot of uh, really important points in a short amount of yeah, time. Um, yeah, and not easy to do in, yeah, <laughs> early on. Yeah, they are challenging. Mm. And I think uh, how is it? It, it does seem like it is a very um, solitary kind of work. Mm. And I imagine, I mean, that comes back to, I guess, what you were talking about earlier about the networking and being out and about. It's, mm. you know, good to be part of a community and around other people. Can Is it the kind of thing that some people are just very naturally good at or is it something that you can train yourself into? Or how mm. do you, what do you think about that aspect of the, of the work? I think that's really important because I definitely am not, was not highly sociable before. To me, you know what actually got me out of my shell was going to LA because it just forces you. It really, and I would, I remember, I remember the first kind of networking event. It was Australians in film, actually. I remember it. And funnily enough, I got a job out of that. A year later, they contacted me. So that's a story there to just push yourself because you never know. But I remember going to that and everything in my body was going, I hate this. I just, I don't want to speak to people. I don't know anyone here. I've just arrived. Um, this is terrifying. And I think, you know, you just fake it until you make it. I think I just faked, you know, hi, <laughs> and feeling confident. And I didn't at all. But the more I did that, the more comfortable I got with it and actually started to enjoy it, to interact with people. Um, but no, at the beginning, especially because you're spending, so, like I said, so much time on your own and it's comfortable, it's going out of your comfort zone. I think that's what it is. And I remember there's some, some sort of saying, if it feels really awful, it's not awful. It's just that you're doing something you've never done before. It's unfamiliar. <laughs> so just to push yourself through that and keep pushing. So I remember definitely, and this was like 2013, um, pushing myself. But I, I knew from, from myself when I was in LA at UCLA and I worked there as well with a few composers is I knew, I was like, this is my chance. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. You know, I'm only here for a certain amount of time. I have to do this. So that's what I had in my mind. And it does get easier, but you do have to really push yourself. And, and yeah, and it's exhausting. If you're an introvert, I would definitely feel like when I do lots of social things, I feel like I have to come home and be quiet for a while and recover. Um, but no, I actually enjoy it now. And now I'm like, oh, I just meet interesting people. It becomes more fun. 
but it's practice. It doesn't come naturally. Some people are lucky and they're just naturally extroverted. But I, I find generally for the composer community in general, I think we're more introverted. Yeah. That makes sense. That's sort of, uh, you know, we find ourselves hopefully doing, spending our lives doing things that play to our strengths and stuff. So mm. that makes sense. And I'll begin sort of wrapping things up now, but another question that sort of comes back to what we were talking about there, but on the flip side, would you have any advice for any directors that mm. like how they should go about finding a composer that would be the right person for their project, how they should go about making contact, what they yeah mm. would you have any thoughts there i do i think um a few things that i would notice well first of all obviously find someone that you get along with um that you uh, are comfortable to work with because it, it is collaborative it can be stressful it can um i mean you obviously want a composer you can find that's reliable that works well under pressure that can deliver as as for anything you know you you know uh, get someone who has that maybe track record but also to give people a chance as well that you that maybe don't have that track record because that's a problem as well it's hard to give people I know you need you know need jobs need to be done but to give people a chance to just get their foot on the ladder and you would be surprised what they could come up with so to give people a chance definitely um what I find helpful and I don't always get is it is actually helpful to have an idea of what they might be looking for. I find, for me, the hardest thing I find is when a director comes to me and they have no idea or they can't articulate even some of it because what happens is you end up spending a lot of tr time trying different things to find and it just takes time then. So if you have an idea even of to give a composer um, music even that you like, even if it's, it's not what you want for the film. But I find that that helps. I would say to a director, what music do you like? What films do you like? And don't worry about the music, but just what do you like? And that does give me an idea because even though I find directors, when they say, I don't know what I want, you kind of do. <laughs> it's there, but you just it needs to be teased out. You do have something, but there's some words that you need to kind of that, that directors don't have because it's it's a music you know the music vocabulary is so different so I would say um to find a composer that you're you know um that you feel you can collaborate with that you get along that you can be social with and then to give them ideas have ideas of some kind and for directors to watch lots of um films and look at the music look what it does I think that's a big thing to trying to understand what the music does in the film and what they might be looking for and just to have some ideas clear ideas of where they want the music as well I think is very helpful but I've worked with directors definitely they're like I don't know I like this sort of music I don't know where it should go or anything and I've kind of we've gone through it together and I've worked out look I think music should go here it should taper off here and then we work through it together and they'll be like yeah yeah I like it here but maybe we could also have it here now and even we try you know I would um and I don't mind it at all as a, as a composer. Some, sometimes you put cues in, they're like, actually, can we lose that cue? We won't use that. I'm like, no problem at all, you know. Um, so there's this, just someone that you can work with. And I think also listen to a lot of composers' work for directors to listen to that composer's work and maybe get them to send some showreels to see how they have used music in different genres for, for narratives if they have even um, a lot of composers do rescores even if it's not their work but they've done a rescore just to give an example of sort of the the sound they have and how they approach a film um, I think that's probably the best advice look at and also look at the Screen Composers Guild of Ireland 
um, that has most of working composers online where you can listen to people's music there and just meet a whole bunch of composers. <laughs> it's the best way. <laughs> just meet a lot of people. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. So um, what do you have coming out uh, next or over the next couple of months? Well, I just had the Irish Civil War that was just broadcast. So that was that took a lot of my <laughs> my life last year. Um, so that was just uh, in December. So now I've I've actually taken a little bit of a different uh, approach. I'm actually I'm working on a contemporary dance production, which is completely different and and just nice to do something a little bit different. And that's with the Aru Dance Company, um, with some uh, dancers from Riverdance, um, and it's based on a play. Uh, by Lorca at the house of Bernarda Alba. So that's going to be May by the time that that's performed. So I really enjoyed that. So we're in rehearsals at the moment and working at the music and talking about approaches that is completely different. <laughs> so I've, I've learned a lot, I have to say. So I'm doing more sort of concert music for the next few months just to, because to be honest, I've had like a good five years and three years of quite intense work in the film. So I, I just wanted to sort of just have a bit of a breather before throwing myself into it again and then I'm also doing a choir album I work with the uh, UCD choral scholars um, and they're recording one of my pieces next month for a CD and then I'm doing my own uh, choir album so I think that's another thing for composers again depends on background and what you want but I find that having a because I do come from the concert world I kind of like having a foot in that world because it feeds me in the film you know they feed each other because they are different in, in in many ways. So I like to have a bit of a break and do some of the concert stuff and then come back to the film. So, yeah, that's where I am now, having a bit of a breather, <laughs> small breather. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, Natasha, for uh, joining us on the show today. And uh, Thank you. It's been lovely. Yeah. Best of luck with everything in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Fad Camp is a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets and diet culture, hosted by me, Grace Mulvey. And me, Connor Dowling. If you have a body of any kind, chances are you've crossed paths with at least one of the bizarre diet trends we cover in our show. And between me and Connor, we have done nearly every fad diet there is. Juice cleansing. Fasting. The potato diet. Which is actually a real diet, by the way, and we don't recommend it. So join us as we try to make sense of the madness that is diet culture. Find Fad Camp everywhere you get your podcasts and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fad Camp Podcast.